sermon. Uh, this passage, I don't need that, do I? Uh, this passage is long and rich in important theological uh, statements, and we really can't get into them in depth today. So I'm going to come up front here and say, I'm planning to skim across this chapter and try and give you some pointers for how you might understand it more clearly. I'm not going to try and explain every detail, and you might want to come and ask me afterwards what I think about one or two points that we have read where you've got a question, if I don't answer it in the sermon. But uh, that's where we're at. It's a pleasure to be back with you again. Uh, thank you for inviting me to share with you uh, this passage that we're looking at today starts off with therefore you might have noticed that now that's a conjunction and uh, it's a logical conjunction it tells us that what happened has a consequence and obviously what we're looking at today is part of a larger argument so chapter two fits nice and neatly into an argument that starts in chapter one runs right through to chapter three and we're in the middle of it i get the negative bit Apologies for that as well. Uh, hopefully you'll be here next week and you'll hear the good side of what Paul's got to say because Paul's starting off talking about sin, which is rough. We don't like to talk about it, do we? And what he's going to end up with is how God has dealt with sin by establishing his own righteousness in the world. So that therefore is very important. It tells us this is not the whole story. And you can't judge the argument based on this bit. But it's very important, the part that we're talking about today, because it's the part we don't like to talk about, and Paul is trying to persuade his readers in Rome. And uh, if we understand that this is part of a large argument, uh, we can actually jump to the end and understand it better and avoid some mistakes, actually, in the part that we're looking at if we keep one thing in mind, and that is Romans chapter 3, verse 9. So spoilers here, I'll tell you the ending of the story. Romans chapter 3 verse 9 says, We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. Right? They're under the power of sin. The point is this, everyone is condemned for sin. So we can avoid some errors in our understanding of chapter 2 if we keep that point in mind. And the uh, discussion that we're having today in the passage we're looking at, this part of it, uh, has three parts. It's a three-part progression. It's an escalation. Paul starts with the most general case. Everyone's involved. Then he moves on to say why, the, the underpinning theology that helps him to understand why everyone's involved. And then he concludes with the specific case. And so we're going to look at that in those three parts of this passage today and try and understand the general argument that Paul is making here that ends with that specific argument, those who have God's word, those who have God's law to guide their actions. Uh, one other thing that's important to keep in mind is that Paul appears to be using an ancient technique of oratory which is called diatribe, and the diatribe is basically this. Uh, he's got a hypothetical, but in no way imaginary, a potential uh, argument going on with a partner in argument. It's a diatribe, two parts to it. So he's talking to someone who quite possibly uh, was sitting in his church at that time, and I wonder if that person might be sitting here today as well. I know that person is in my heart. You know, the question arises out of this chapter. Uh, what about the Jews? 
We talked in chapter 1 about how everyone is so sinful. But what about the Jews? Aren't they better off? After all, they've got God's law, God's word that tells them what's right and wrong. And Paul's answer is a little bit difficult because he says, actually, having the law might make it worse for you. Having the law might actually put you in a worse position, especially if you think that having it makes you better than all the other people around you. Let's pray before we look at God's word. We do praise you, Father, for your word. We praise you that your word teaches us the truth about who we are and about who you are. Thank you that your word points out to us where we are wrong. Thank you that you have done everything that is necessary to make us right. We pray that you will change our hearts away from judgmental condemnation to loving patience and faithful good works for your son Jesus. Amen. So chapter 2 starts off with this uh, key phrase, uh, the uh, one who judges others, the one who is judging others. Uh, And Paul's point in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2 is simply this, that we who condemn others who do the things that we do are actually condemning ourselves. We who condemn others who do the things that we do, we're condemning ourselves. That sounds logical, doesn't it? Now, why does Paul need to say this? Because in chapter 1, Paul has used a list of sins that people in the world commit, which is a classic list. It would be recognisable instantly to the Jews of his day and to the God-fearing Gentiles who kind of hung out with the Jews in the synagogue as the list of sins that Gentiles commit, those who don't know God and don't have God. It's a classic list. And they would look at that list and they would automatically start saying, yep, those Gentiles, they're bad guys. Yeah? Uh, Jewish culture forbade those sins. Other cultures around them more or less tolerated them. The, the Romans, the Greeks, the Phoenicians, the, the Persians more or less tolerated the sins in chapter 1, much like our society does today. And... That list is a classic list, but Paul probably also knew people who'd engaged in those sins in chapter 1 quite extensively. So we could be talking about friends of Paul when he's condemning them in chapter 1. The question arises, uh, is this happening? Is he writing? Because those Jewish Christians in the church are looking down on the Gentile Christians in the church and somehow feeling superior because they come from a Jewish background, a Jewish culture that doesn't practice those practices and they never have. Well, verse 1 is key. It may be difficult to work out what he means here by, uh, oh, you who is judging others, the judging man. Uh, But it's a fairly straightforward path to conclude that Paul is talking about every person who is judgmental in condemning other people. This is a very general statement that Paul is making. He is against the hypocrisy of condemning in others what we ourselves do. You know, see, Paul is not saying there are some sinners who are worse than others. In no way is he saying that. 
He doesn't see some sinners as worse than others. He certainly doesn't think that there are better sinners, as though you can sin better. Paul is saying here that all sinners are sinners. And the very act of claiming the right to despise others because of their sin is reason for God's condemnation. That's where he's going with this. Once again, by judging sin in others, we are guilty of sin ourselves. How is that so? Because we also engage in those sins. That's one argument. We're guilty because we condemn it and we do it. So we're condemned by ourselves. Not only that, but Paul goes on to say this. He says, calculate this. Work this out, you judging man, in verse 3. And he concludes that verse with, how will you escape God's judgment? I think the NIV picks this up, verse 3, quite well, even though the words in verse 3 don't capture the exact translation of the uh, original language. It picks it up really well by putting in that mere mortal, an eternal God, We are guilty when we condemn others because we say, in some way, we have the right to judge them. And that right to judge others is God's alone. So what we've done then is we haven't just done the things that we condemn and therefore condemned ourselves. We're doubly condemned because we raise ourselves to God's status. And we somehow believe that we are the righteous judge who has the right to judge those who are around us. That's God's prerogative. So we stand condemned by the mere act of condemning those around us. You might notice that this raises some problems when we get to verse 6 and verse 7. Who is it then that Paul is talking about here where he says that there are some people who persist in doing good, seeking glory and honour and immortality? Who's he talking about here? Are these people able to judge others? Maybe I'm one of them. Paul's standard is very high. You know, later on in Romans, he's going to say that if anyone fails in one part of the law, then they have failed the law and they stand condemned. Right here in this passage, he uses a term that is really a very broad term, the most general term possible uh, for persisting in something. He basically means uh, keeping on, keeping on, right? Faithfully and always consistently doing. It means sticking at it. The most general possible term. But at the same time, uh, the word that he uses uh, for good works, sorry, I've mixed that up. The word he uses for good works is the most general possible term for good works, all and every good work. But the term he uses therefore, persist, is very specific. It's always and every time consistently doing it. So what is he saying in verses 6 and 7? He's saying that someone out there might potentially 
always, in every case, in every situation, do all the good works that they should do. In every situation. What do you think? Could anyone here raise their hand right now and say they always do everything that they should do? Not good. Okay, thank you. That one's over, right? I don't have to. <laughs> okay. It's right, isn't it? We all naturally fail. We naturally, we've failed. Right? So Paul is not saying this person exists. He's not saying it hypothetically either. He says this is a possibility. But at the same time, he's showing that it doesn't happen. It hasn't happened. It never has been, right? It doesn't happen. We all fail. We all naturally fall into verse 8. What does verse 8 say? We are naturally self-seeking followers of evil. Right? No parent ever sat their child down and said, right, today I want you to work really hard at doing the wrong thing. We naturally do that. We need instruction to do that. Uh, we are naturally destined for God's judgment. And his wrath and judgment is against Jew and Gentile. We all fail God's standard. Once again, Paul says we who condemn in others the things that we ourselves do are condemning ourselves. But the good news is, God is patient, God is kind, God wants us to repent, to turn away from that that we do and turn to him and do what we should. God has been patient with our sinfulness, verse 4. God has not destroyed us immediately in our sinfulness. God has desired that we turn from sin, renounce it, trust him to forgive us. And if we do otherwise, then, verse 5, we are in the essence of sin by saying that we don't need, we don't desire God to forgive us. That, again, that is the essence of sin saying, I am above sin. I am above God's law. I don't need God's forgiveness. That is the essence of sin. Now, my wife was looking up uh, on the internet the other day uh, preschools in our area. And she came across a preschool that had this really interesting philosophy statement on the front page. Said, we are a non-judgmental preschool. We teach tolerance and practice tolerance, regardless of race, religion, or gender. We teach your children tolerance as the essential stage of life and learning. Australians love that, don't we? We somehow raise tolerance to the highest place. It's the greatest value we can have. Uh, Particularly, Australians love to condemn the intolerance of Christians, don't they? Yeah? We tolerate everyone except an intolerant person. 
But Paul's not talking in Romans 2 about value judgments, which I think is where that statement is more heading. He's not talking about value judgment. He's not saying you can't judge wrong as wrong. He's not saying that. Paul's point is this, to say that we face God's condemnation for failure. It doesn't mean we have to tolerate wrong, but we certainly shouldn't be walking around condemning failure in others. That's not what God wants us to do. We can't claim we're somehow better than them. Somehow we are like God. How should we respond then? What we should do in response to God's mercy, his patience, his kindness towards us, is to repent. To recognise that we have actually done wrong and we should be patient. We should be patient like him with those around us who are in sin, like us. You see, the main point was this. If we condemn those who do the things that we do, we are condemning ourselves. We declare that we are under condemnation. And the dangerous, dangerous place that that puts us in is that God has no favourites. God doesn't show favouritism to anyone. He is above favouritism, verse 11. And this is the theological underpinning of Paul's statement about condemnation. This is the truth behind it, why he can say this. The main point is this, very simply, God judges all people for sin. God judges all people for sin. That is to say that the same judgment comes upon all people who sin, whether they be Jew by heritage or whether they be of a Gentile background, all. It's an inclusive, right? He's not dividing it out into Jew and Gentile, but drawing them together and saying, you see the world in two parts, Jews and Gentiles? Well, all of them are condemned for sin. God doesn't have a favourite nation. It doesn't matter about your national boundary markers and signs of membership or colour of skin. It doesn't matter about the customs that you practice, whether they come from the Bible or not. God judges us for how we respond to him. This means that the Jews who have the law and know more about God and what he wants are actually first in judgment. Because of their precedence in having knowledge of God, they have precedence in condemnation for their failure of what they've done with that knowledge. They know more, they are more culpable. So God will judge all who sin, whether by the law, verse 12, or without the law. God will judge each according to how they respond to what they know of him. What can be known about God is denied as much by those who have the law as it is by those who don't have the law. Right? The mere act of knowing the law does not make us righteous. Having a Bible does not make you Christian. Not even opening the Bible makes you Christian. Right? Only by doing the law in every part 
is one righteous before God. And not knowing the law is not an excuse, as though you can claim ignorance. You know, don't tell me about Jesus because then I'm okay. God can't judge me. Doesn't work. Those who don't have the law will be judged apart from the law. You know, here Paul places more emphasis actually on the Jewish audience. His argument is that uh, some in the Roman church, obviously, the church of ancient Rome, that is, uh, thought that being Jewish gave them some superiority, some precedence over the the non-Jewish Christians in the church. And uh, we know from Acts that there was actually a Pharisee party even in the church in Jerusalem at this time. And those Pharisees were driving hard to say, okay, Gentiles want to be Christians, we can accept that as long as they start making themselves Jews. And what do they have to do to become Jews? Well, they have to be circumcised. I'm assuming he's talking about the men, right? And uh, just generally, they have to start practicing the practices of the Jews if they want to be Christians, is what this Pharisee party was saying. And the, the apostles <laughs> resisted this. Paul fought strenuously against this argument. No, 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 no. Being Jewish doesn't make you better with God, he says. The Gentiles don't have to become Jews. In fact, he turns this argument around, doesn't he? Look at verse 14. When Gentiles who don't have that law, by nature, do what the law requires, they make a law for themselves. They become a law for themselves. Confusing, confusing verse. I'm not entirely sure that I can explain where Paul's going with that, but the gist of it is this. Uh, There are some Gentiles who actually do things that meet what the law expects. And so they have become a law for themselves. They've, They've actually met the righteous requirement of God's law in some way. Uh... And so they didn't need to have it written down and know it as the Jews did. It's important to say, I don't think Paul's thinking about just Gentile Christians at this point. I think he's thinking generally about Gentiles. Uh, It is possible that he's talking about Gentile Christians. I mean, there's there's that bit about the law being written on their hearts, and that might be a reference back to Isaiah chapter 33, where the law is written on their hearts. But that's difficult because... It actually says in the passage here that we're looking at today, they don't have the law. So maybe written on their hearts in some way, I don't know, through God's general grace in creation. Uh, through chapter 1, through what might be known about God from his creation. In some way, uh, Paul is saying Gentiles have in their hearts some concept of what they should do, what they should not do. And in their ignorance of the Torah... Uh, they still do something of the law that is good, but there's no suggestion in the passage that they keep every part of the law. He simply says that in some way they might fulfil some part of the law. They're not in complete command of the law. I think this is like uh, John Calvin's idea of total depravity. It's a commonly misunderstood uh, explanation of human sinfulness, Uh, Calvin's idea of total depravity is not that uh, we are completely and utterly depraved, but that in every part of us is corruption. There's no part of us that escapes from that corruption of depravity. 
Yeah? So these people uh, who don't know God are his creatures. They have some consciousness of right and wrong. Sometimes they do good in the sense that on God's judgment day at the end of time, their sense of right will be confirmed as right. So their sense of right in that will be shown to have been right. But in other ways, notice this, in other ways on God's judgment day, their sense of right will be confirmed as wrong and condemned. So God's righteous judgment on judgment day will reveal where they were right and where they were wrong in following what they thought was right and wrong. So it's not a reason here to argue for natural justice. This is not what Paul's talking about, some kind of natural morality that's acceptable to God. Uh, At the same time, he's not arguing for the conscience, that little voice inside. I was raised with that one. Listen to the little voice inside guiding you through life. Paul's not advocating conscience as the measure of righteousness or of right and wrong. Uh, Paul is saying that these sometimes good non-Jews are actually still condemned on judgment day. Even when they do the works of the law that God would approve without knowing it, they're still condemned on judgment day. Because Paul's point is this, God judges all people for their sin. <coughs> Comedian Bill Bailey has a, a very interesting take on this and uh, when I saw this it reminded me of Romans chapter 2. We might just have a quick look at it now. That might have been our sound problem, right? endorse Bill Bailey by the way a very irreligious man but uh, it's understandable where he goes isn't it it's understandable where he goes with this argument sadly the reason that this misconception is common in our society this misconception about sin is common because of many faithful Christians over many generations yeah I'll explain Uh, our misconception of the biblical view of sin comes from the fact that we've given the impression that anyone who sins is like a hunched up crow on the stump of guilt. We've given that impression, some kind of deformed, despised monstrosity because we've shunned those, we've shunned those for whom we should have prayed and we have uh, consigned to Satan those to whom we should have shown grace. 
in our response to sin, we have generated the impression that we think of ourselves as better than them. You know, we, we give this impression that uh, we have this moral code that we want to impose upon them. And there's a natural reaction for them to say, well, hang on, I'm not so sure what I've cried. I'm a pretty good person. I do okay stuff. I don't kill anyone. And it's because we've created a false dichotomy in our reaction to sin in our world. You know, some biblical scholars make this mistake when they look at this passage. They forget Paul's overall argument from chapters 1 to 3, get caught up in the details, and they forget that uh, actually here in this passage, Paul's not saying some people are good. And they try and look for, what, how do we understand that they're the good person? Maybe they belong to this group. Or, and they lose the track. Paul's point is this, and if Bill Bailey's right, we are all shriveled and ugly with sin. Paul's point is this. Uh, there's no difference between the person in the brothel and the person in the church. Except perhaps we hope that the people in the church are looking for a righteous bridegroom who will cleanse them and restore them. But in themselves, no difference. Well, the good news is this. There is one righteous person. You knew that. You've been waiting for that, haven't you? There is one righteous person. He is the righteous one who was declared righteous through his persistence in doing good, his persistence in seeking God's glory and God's honour. He's mentioned in verse 16. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ, through whom all things were created, in whom all things are made new, and in whom and by whom all things will be judged. The secrets of our hearts will be revealed through Jesus. But what great good news this will be if we have trusted in and hoped in him to cleanse us and to restore us. Well, how should we respond now? How should we respond now to this statement that we are all alike condemned for our sin? We should cry out to God that he will include us in Christ's righteousness. We should throw ourselves at the Saviour's feet and seek his forgiveness. And we should persist in good as he did, seeking and praying for righteousness in our world. God judges all people for their sin, but Jesus has none. We're going to move on to verses 17 to 29. The specific case of those who have the law, Paul starts with, now if you rely on the law. And the point in this section is 
those who have the law and should be teachers of the law also need God's grace. In verse 24, Paul has some harsh words to say. He says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. If there's any reason why non-believers criticise the church, it's not because of God's goodness. If there's any reason that non-believers criticise the church, it's not because of the uprightness of God's law. It's because of Christians. It's because in our ignorance, sorry, in their ignorance, uh, they think that we have failed to keep that moral code that we want to impose on them. So they've misunderstood. They're mistaken uh, in understanding what we believe. And the result is that they turn away from us. They see us as miserable in our hypocrisy because we have low standards for ourselves and judgmental standards against them. So the question is, how is it that Paul says of the Jews in verses 21 and 23 uh, that they are thieves, that they rob temples and commit adultery? What's he going on about? It looks strange, doesn't it? How are Jews temple thieves? But none of this is new for the Jews. From Deuteronomy to the prophets, the Old Testament condemns the Jews for exactly these crimes. The accusations are made again and again against Israel. You steal from the poor. You are unfaithful, personally and nationally. You are idolaters. You cheat Gentiles. There's an old uh, historical document that talks about how a Jew is quite happy to make an idol and sell it to a Gentile as long as they don't worship it. To get money. You cheat the Gentiles. You know, Paul underlines this by quoting from the prophet Ezekiel here. Uh, The Jews consider themselves better because they had the law. They knew the law. They could teach it to the ignorant. All those poor, ignorant, unwashed masses. But what did they do instead? They taught other nations to despise the name of their God by their failure to keep the law. They were public witnesses by their hypocrisy to the fact that their God could not be trusted. And God punished them in such a way that the name Jew became a byword amongst the nations. In this way, in the exile, God's punishment showed the Jews what they had done with his name by the way that the nations treated them. And in that way, even while he was purifying them from their corruption in the exile, they learned the importance of God's name. 
You see, those who should have been teachers of the law were in need of God's grace and forgiveness. Paul also goes on to talk about the idea of circumcision here in verses 25 to 29, that national marker of the Jews, which was actually practiced by the Egyptians and some other races, uh, other nations around them. It's not unique to the Jews, except in its application, why God told them to do it. Paul doesn't here say that the Jews should not be circumcised, but neither does he say that they should. Paul's point here about circumcision is that circumcision in the flesh, what was taken as the marker of being God's nation, was neither here nor there. Paul's point is the old point from the Old Testament that what God really wants is a nation who have circumcised hearts. Hearts which have been committed completely to him. You know, we do the same thing. When we, when we say the creed, we say those words about believing in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We practice baptism with water. What we actually believe is that it's only truly saving baptism if it's baptism by the Holy Spirit. You recall the apostles standing up for the Gentile Christians. The basis of their defense of the Gentile Christians was this. We know that God has already accepted them because they have the Holy Spirit. They don't need the outward sign. They don't need circumcision because God has made them his already. And, uh, you know, this is really what we believe as well. What matters is not outward signs and acts, but having a heart that is truly circumcised, a heart that is truly baptised. And true circumcision comes, and always has come, by trusting in God's promise by trusting in God's righteous judgment of sin and by trusting in God's righteous saviour. This is the ultimate persistence in doing good from verse 7. The ultimate form of persisting in doing good is the same as the ultimate obedience to the law in verse 13. The ultimate spiritual expression of membership in God's people is trusting God. Trusting his promised salvation, trusting his promised saviour, Jesus. And only then are we praised by God, declared righteous by God, rewarded with eternal life. If we recognise our need, throw ourselves at our saviour's feet and trust in the gracious mercy of God, who is righteous. So how are we going to escape from God's judgment? It's not by condemning others. Then we just condemn ourselves. Because God judges all people for sin. And even those who know the truth need grace. What are we going to do? I hope you've picked up three things today. One. We need to trust God's righteous Son. Only then can we escape from God's judgment.
We need to live like he lived. In justice. In righteousness. Towards those around us and for them. And the third thing that we need to do is live in humble repentance and patience. Patient kindness towards the sinners who live around us. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we recognise that uh, your word teaches us what it is to be a sinner. And we recognise that we are in sin. We need your son's righteousness because we have no righteousness of our own. And we pray that you will give us truly circumcised hearts, truly baptised hearts that belong to you, that we might live such lives amongst our fellow sinners that they will turn to you in trust and repentance because we do too. Amen.